This is the Power to Podcast, show 154. Welcome to a real-world education with insight and advice from teachers in the game, where current and former educators reveal what truly sets apart the great teachers and what it takes to make a positive impact on students. Whether you're in pre-service learning, new to the game, or a seasoned veteran, this is the show for you. You'll leave feeling inspired to take action because we are powering education by empowering you. Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is Kennerman, host of the Power to Podcast, and I am here along with my co-host, Mr. Matt, the Shakespeare of podcast co-host Rogers. Wow. <laughs> you like that one? I mean, that was dense. How are you? I'm great, man. How are you? We talked about dead authors tonight, so I figured I'd weave that into your, weave that into your name. I can't believe I got that out first take, first shot. I'm impressed. Um, I mean, kudos to you, but uh, yeah, things are good. We are we are hanging in. We're recording this in middle of December, early December. Um, our lives are not completely uh, flipped upside down, so that's a good thing. Yeah, that's a great thing. Uh, we we did have a guest on tonight where we mentioned the idea of dead authors. We actually didn't really talk about them too much. We talked to an amazing high school English teacher. Uh, you and I were just talking between recording the intro and and finishing up with with Gary Whitehead. It was just a really enjoyable, fascinating conversation. And you and I taught professional development graduate courses in 2005. No, I'm sorry, 2015, off, off 10 years there. And talking about things that were usually ahead of what we were seeing from other teachers and other districts that we worked with. Gary was teaching online, wrote an online course in 1999 and started teaching it in 2000, which was incredibly fascinating the year and just the way that it's weaved through his career and just the, the transformations that he's gone through. So it was a really enjoyable conversation. I think there's a lot for teachers to take away from his approach to teaching and the way he interacts and engages his students. Yeah, I just, I would add, I remember I was going through my master's program in 2013 and I had to build, had to build a Moodle course. Um, <laughs> and that was my first exposure to a learning management system. And if you're familiar with Moodle, it is like a file system on your computer that is just a link to just essentially download the materials you need. And yes, mm -hmm. there's discussion boards and what have you. The thought of that uh, cost versus time analysis, right? Like the benefit compared to the amount of time to develop in 2014 with a ecosystem that was built for it. Yet, you know, had a lot of uh, improvements needed. I could not imagine how many hoops he had to jump through to get something usable that he mentions was interacted with across the world. And that's, you know, there's a difference between us allowing our elementary kids to have access to a learning management system than mm -hmm. a high school student. I get that. But boy, oh boy, to gather and create all those materials, because you're not just hyperlinking an article in mm. 1999. Like, that's crazy to me. He had yeah. to mail the textbook out to wherever they are in the world to participate. It's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that was really the launch into an, an overall great conversation. So... Uh, without any further delay, let's bring Gary Whitehead into the podcast. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. Hi, Gary. Welcome to the Powered Up Podcast. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, Matt. Uh, 
Ken, thank you for having me. Hey, Matt. Hey Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. So kick things off nice and simple. Please officially introduce yourself. Let us know where you are coming from and give us a snapshot of what your career in education has looked like. So uh, I live in Norwood, New Jersey, and I teach in a town called Tenafly, New Jersey, which is a few towns south of here, uh, which is just outside metropolitan New York. I'm in my 27th year at Tenafly High School as an English teacher, uh, teaching this year 9 through 12. Um, some years I might have just 11th graders and 12th graders. This year I happen to have all four grades because I have a mixed level journalism class that has 9 through 12 uh, mixed together over three levels in that one class. I've also got two 11th grade AP language and composition classes and two senior CPB classes, they call it, which is a lower level college prep B class. Um, at the at the school, I also advise the school newspaper, the Echo, which has been around for many years, going back to uh, 1896. It's been in continuous publication, uh, of course, print originally and now uh, fully digitally. So 27 years, which is is really incredible, and is a is a great service to public education. And I feel like in high school English specifically, I can only I feel like I can't even imagine to begin to guess the changes that you have seen go through your classroom in terms of not only the student population, the student interests, but just the, the philosophy overall of what a high school English class should look like, right? Regardless of grade level, regardless if it's American literature or British literature or your AP class or even your journalism class, I mean, that alone, like you highlighted the, the the changes in that specific newspaper. But what would you say over the course of your career as those changes happened gradually and then you kind of all of a sudden realized how far you had, how far things had changed or abruptly, what was something that as it was coming to your the doorstep of your classroom, you were really excited about that maybe some of your colleagues were not, or maybe they all were, but it was something that you were really excited about the change you were seeing in just what high school English class was going to be about. And what was something that perhaps was, it took a while for you to accept and maybe you accepted it because you had to, or you finally accepted because you realized it was good. But what, what were those, what were kind of two things that would fall in that category? Yeah. I mean, over the years, things have definitely changed. When I first started there, the big technology in 1997, if I recall, was PowerPoint. And I happened to know it because I had used it in grad school. And, you know, I was like the hotshot new teacher with my my PowerPoints and everybody else was using, you know, dittos and maybe a brand new photocopy machine if we had one back then. Um, and of course the technology just, uh, you know, took off over the years. Um, you know, the internet was fairly new when I started. I think I first saw the World Wide Web in grad school in 1995 at Iowa State University. And, uh, you know, a couple of years later, we had it at the, the high school, but it was pretty rudimentary then, if I recall. Um, I, don't, I don't remember communicating all that much through email until I had, I had been there a couple of years. Um, but then by 2000, things were really you know, taking off with the internet. I remember the, you know, the days of Napster and, um, you know, the internet just growing uh, exponentially by the day. And in 99, I got connected with a, uh, an outfit called Virtual High School, which is a consortium of schools. Uh, at the time, it was based in Concord, Massachusetts. I think they've since moved to another town in Massachusetts. Um, and there was a posting at my school, does anybody want to get involved with Virtual High School? The deal is um, in exchange for uh, developing a course and teaching a course on virtual high school to students from around the country, around the world who are at American schools abroad um, or in the States, uh, 25 of our students will get to sign up for classes on virtual high school. So that was that was probably one of the first you know, big changes for me was, you know, cyber teaching. So I took a year long course, I think it was called the Teachers Learning Conference with, I think it was about 15 other teachers from around the country who are also developing courses. And so it was, it was an online course in how to develop an online course. And everybody had their different disciplines. 
mine was in contemporary American poetry was my course theme. So I developed this course over a year. You know, I got graduate credits for doing it. You know, we had to read textbooks and you know, write papers and things like that while at the same time developing the course and critiquing one another's courses. And then the following year, I started delivering my course to students from around the country who wanted to sign up for it because their schools were part of this consortium. So that that was kind of like the biggest early change for me was teaching a course online. And, and that, that was, was in 1999? 99 was when I developed it. I launched it in 2000. Wow. Yeah. And I did that for 18 years, worked with VHS. Um, I, th I thought it was an amazing program. I loved it. So the way it initially worked, I would uh, mail the textbooks to the students that I would have, and they'd be all over the place. There might be one in Alaska, one in you know Kansas, one, uh, a couple in Massachusetts, because there were a bunch of schools involved then. And for, for a number of years, I think I was the only teacher in New Jersey doing this program, teaching online. So it was a, it was a brand new thing, and I felt like I was really on the cutting edge with that. And then, um, you know, I would deliver the course over a semester, and then the students would return the book to me. And the way that it worked, it was asynchronous. So the kids could do their work pretty much whenever. It wasn't like this where we're live. Um, you know, I could put recorded videos and audio on there, which I sometimes did. But for the most part, because we're in different time zones, some kids being abroad, it was asynchronous, so kids could just do their work at their own pace over the course of the week, and there were certain assignments they had to do. They had to collaborate with each other, and mostly in discussion boards. Um, it was kind of like the class discussion. And then they also had to do written written papers, and it was a poetry class, so sometimes they'd write poems. They would also write essays about poems that we studied. So yeah, and then in exchange for that, 25 of our kids got to take classes uh, through this program. And I remember kids taking things like aviation history. There was this one kid who was really interested in airplanes. So he took a course in aviation history. And then there was uh, other things like Shakespeare whodunit. I mean, you name it. It was like all these different classes. Oh, psych. Before we had a psych class at my school, a lot of kids would take psych. There was an AP psych that they took before we launched an AP psych at our class, at our, at our school. Um, so yeah, that was definitely one of the early, uh, I guess, um, the, the, the biggest technological change for me in education was that cyber class and that cyber teaching. In 2000. Matt, are, in are, 2000. You, as, are you as flabbergasted by this as, as I am? I, I am. I, mean, I, I was just going to lead and say, Ken, I guarantee that wasn't the answer you were expecting to hear. <laughs> no, right? like, it, it wasn't. This is, this is proof that we don't script anything on this show that, I mean, we don't, we don't have, we don't have better proof than this. And Matt, I will let you jump in, but like, yeah. You're talking about flipped teaching. You're talking about asynchronous learning. And, and we're talking about 1999, 2000. It's just, wow. So sorry, go ahead, Matt. Well, I just, I, I guess in, in that realm, you know, let's fast forward quite a bit. And you're watching colleagues struggle to adapt to what felt like probably in the, you know, teen, 2000, 13 to obviously up until the pandemic, technology was a very cute thing to include into education. Like it was a, oh, you know, our school district would like to be in the newspaper. Can you do something special? Like that was very much the exterior pressure of why, unless it was actually benefiting you in some way. And then we obviously took a shift, a massive shift of it was a must do for a short period of time. So just kind of speaking from um, obviously conquering the, the monkey on the back of transitioning to an online platform, what did you feel like was beneficial for you um, that you had known long before that if you could have just spread this information uh, sooner, what is something you felt like you had seen before everyone needed it? And what are some things you saw that you were impressed by other educators who maybe had a reactive response to digital learning? There, there was a lot of reactive responses to virtual high school when I first started it. Uh, I remember a lot of my fellow teachers kind of looking at me with scorn that I was teaching a remote class. Um, they thought it was just like an easy gig 
And it was anything but that. It was so much work. I mean, it was way more work than any of my face-to-face -face classes, just because I was constantly having to log in and check out these discussion boards and you know, grade assignments and communicate with site coordinators who were trying to keep the, the kids who were enrolled in my class on task if they were falling behind. Um, so yeah, there was definitely a lot of negative reaction to it. I, I saw it as having, having the potential to just open up education in so many ways. To be able to teach a kid from Alaska, I thought that was super cool. And to be able to have a kid from Brazil in my class, I thought that was also amazing. So it was bringing worldwide perspective, these kids who are living very different lifestyles from you know a kid in New Jersey or a kid in Massachusetts and um, you know melding them together in, in class discussions. And so I think for those kids who were enrolled, it just uh, you know made them a little more worldly gave them a better sense of, you know, there's life beyond the bubble of my little town or my, my school. And um, yeah, I had some, I had some wonderful experiences with those kids. You know, one of them I put in touch with a poet whose book I had published through a little press that I ran. That, that means that, that meant so much to this, this kid that this author reached out to her because she, oh, the girl had written an essay on one of the poems that, from this poet's book. And uh, the poet wrote her a letter and sent her the book. And I mean, it was it was like this really uh, amazing moment for this for this young girl. I think she was on a, she was in school on Mar Martha's Vineyard, I think, which I also thought was neat to be teaching a kid who lives on an island. Um, yeah, just just to get back to your uh, your question. So, yeah, I guess I. Um, I recognize the potential for for cyber teaching, cyber education before colleges started to offer online classes and, and now you know name a college that doesn't have uh online classes as part of its you know educational component yeah i just i i want to just follow up real quick and then can feel free to chime in like one of the things that i hear from you is the idea of the or the opportunity to teach learners uh, and people from different environments and experiences and how that can be a huge benefit. Did you feel like you leveraged that with your in-class students? And how did you leverage it? Because for instance, oh, I have to pick an elective. I'm going to choose this one. Or I have to pick this schedule and this is the one that fits my class. That motivation compared to a kid that lives in a completely different environment. How, how did you like not almost prioritize that perspective and again you're doing it mostly through message boards and asynchronous but um what was your your jockeying of how are you balancing that how are you using their thoughts how are you allowing your kids to provide them thoughts what was what was that exchange like so do you mean my my own face-to-face -face students yeah yeah was there any interaction or was it purely like a separate it was purely Existing. separate. It was it was really my fifth class. So at my school, we teach five classes. Um, that was my fifth class. So at my school, I ta taught four, and that was my fifth. And they didn't really they didn't really mix. Although I did share with my face to face kids, you know, who was in my class and what we were talking about. And sometimes I would share it by pulling it up on uh, whatever screen we might have had at the time. It was probably, yeah. you know, who knows what it was. I don't even remember. You know, or I would just, you know, sh share it from my iPad if I had one once those came out. Um, well, but no, that but no, the two didn't the two didn't really mix. Well, and I and Ken, you may be able to speak to the author specifically, just an example. And uh, you just spoke to the emotion. Ken and I worked for a uh, professional development company for a while, and we wrote courses around books that we really believed in. And there was a book uh, about flipping. Um, like project-based learning. Um, and again, Ken, your, your memory for these things is better than mine, but was, was fascinating about this. And this relates to your uh, student connecting with the poet. We read the story throughout the course. The author was on a press tour talking about pitching this book. And you could see after the first question was asked that it was like, Hey, you mentioned that in your third grade classroom, you did this, and the author just exploded, like beamed with excitement because I wasn't just pitching anymore. 
someone new to my level. And, and I think that that has got to be such a rewarding experience. And you've got to have so many of those that you're like, I made this connection or, you know, the product that I received from, you know, absolutely blew you away than what your other four classes may have been providing you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I also tried to do this in my face-to-face -face classes and I still do. Um, I bring in people whenever I can. And having a dual career as a writer, I've met a lot of other writers that I've invited to the school. And I've also been involved in trying to bring in some writers through programs like the Geraldine R. R. Dodge Poetry Foundation, which runs uh, a biannual poetry festival in New Jersey. It's one of the biggest in the country. It used to happen out in Waterloo Village, out in Western New Jersey, which is kind of like a living history sort of farm or whatever. Um, beautiful setting. Uh, last five, 10 years or so, it's been in Newark, New Jersey, so fully urban. And uh, it's an amazing, amazing poetry festival, but we've brought in a lot of writers from the Dodge Poetry Festival to work with our creative writing uh, students. And by the way, we used to have a hugely popular and vibrant creative writing program. It's a little bit less so now because of, you know, students have to, having to meet certain state requirements. Um, the the uh, enrollment for creative writing has decreased from what it used to be. But when I first started at Tenafly, I uh, taught a creative writing class and it was an intro class. So I'd have a lot of freshmen and then there was no other class for them to take after that. And I said, this is crazy. These kids are getting turned on to writing as freshmen. And then all of a sudden they have to stop. Like we got to have multiple levels of this. So I proposed honors two, three, and four. So I had four years of creative writing and I taught a lot of students who would take it for four years. And I had amazing bonds established with those kids. They would write more in their high school career than most people would write in you know half a lifetime because they would have to do a quarter portfolio every quarter of poetry or fiction or nonfiction or playwriting. And they had to, they would hand in four of those over the course of the course of the year because we're on like a quarter system. And by the end of their last year of high school, they would have written 16 of these things. Amazing, amazing, you know, prolific writing that, that these students were doing and, and advising the literary magazine, I would see evidence of this, like some of the issues I look back at from the mid 2000s, like maybe 2005, 2004, 250 pages of perfect bound a literary journal of entirely work from students at our school. So, I mean, it was a really, really powerful and vibrant program. Um, and a, a lot of time, uh, times I would invite these poets in who I would meet at writing residency programs or um, for a while there was a deal where the Dodge Foundation also funded scholarships for teachers to study at the uh, Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, Mass in Cape Cod. And I, I did three of those over different summers and I invited one of those teachers to come in um, and he was, he was phenomenal. He was really good. And, uh, you know, other people that I'd met even before I started teaching, I invited to come in like Patricia Smith, who's a very well-known performance poet. And she's also published many books. She's won, won many awards prior to being a, a poet. She was a Boston Globe columnist. She, she came into my school a couple of times and, you know, just, just bringing people in, it, it, like you said, Matt, just kind of like really makes it real. It's not just like dead authors that, that the kids are reading now. It's like real people. And yeah, art exists and is being made every day. And, you know, when students realize that, it's like, yeah, mind blown. Yeah, it, it, it really is so valuable in any subject area when you can bring someone else in, even if you are the kid's favorite teacher or they enjoy being in your class, they respect you, they, they are engaged in the activities that you're doing. When you bring someone else in, it's just a, one, it's just a change of pace, right? And it just gives a different perspective. Even, it, it doesn't even have to be someone famous. It doesn't even have to be someone that has a website. It can, it can truly be anyone. Like, and I would, even in the classroom myself, one of our instructional technology coaches was a history teacher prior to stepping into that role and was going for his doctorate in history. And I would bring him in for social studies lessons because 
he had so much more knowledge of the concepts that we were talking about. And it was very apparent to the students and they were just more engaged because they knew that the person standing in front of them just had more knowledge about the, the topic that we, that we were, that we were exploring as a class. So I want to, I, I want to dial back maybe just one more time on this, on this online learning and, and follow up with something that Matt was asking. I have to imagine that you creating these videos, like you said, doing flipped learning, doing asynchronous learning in the early 2000s with your students in this program, it had to have an impact on not necessarily commingling the classes like Matt talks about, but the way that you approach instruction with your face-to-face -face classes. How do you think your instruction modified, changed, or your mindset towards instruction changed at all with your face-to-face -face classes as you continue down this path for 18 years of, of this online learning? Yeah, so as the internet became you know, more available and we got uh, smart boards and then clear touch boards at my school, and then more recently switched to Google Classroom exclusively, um, I think those changes for me didn't feel so shocking and you know so scary i kind of embrace them as oh okay i'm already using the internet in my instruction a lot this just makes it easier and um you know i'm a little torn on google classroom like i i don't know if you guys use it but um okay i, Can't I, stand I love <laughs> really i, I, I love that with it majorly yeah, I love that I have everything in one place and that it's easy to find anything I want. You know, like I, I prior to this, I had file cabinets in my classroom or in my office. And you know, I'm not a great file keeper, so they were always a mess full of, you know, more copies than, than I needed of everything. Um, so I just like I like how uh, convenient it is just in terms of housing materials and delivering them. But I don't like students looking at computers day in and day out mm -hmm. during the class period and that's what it's become and um, I kind of sometimes pine for a return to pencil and paper paper books uh, instead of every kid looking at a screen and and the teacher looking at the screen for that matter and yeah, in, in my personal opinion I, I think that you know technology has gone through its ebbs and flows the pandemic forced it upon everybody when we first came back from it, we still had to use it because there was still social distancing, or you might have had half your kids in, half your kids out, depending on what that that looked like. And then it was almost like when everybody was back, when social distancing ended, when you could literally like share a pencil and like pass a paper around your room, a lot of teachers said, I'm done with technology. I'm going back to face to face because of all the negative aspects that they saw about it, some of what you're highlighting there. And, and I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I agree when I'm working. So I'm an instructional coach now for our, our secondary schools, when I'm working with math teachers and, and they're saying to me, like, I really think my kids need to be doing this on whiteboards or paper versus on a program like formative where they can show their work and they can do all that on the screen. And, and I don't argue with that at all. My standpoint is we should be leveraging technology to create experiences that you can't without the technology. And it should not be the focal point, but it should be an additional tool. So online discussion boards, right? Students could literally just like sit in front of the computer screen, respond to an online discussion board and scroll and respond to each other on the online discussion board and never look up from their computer screen, which I would not, I would not defend at all. I, I don't think that should be happening in a classroom. But yeah. what I like about online discussion boards is one, it forces everyone to initially participate. And two, you can use it as a serving tool to then facilitate a face-to-face -face class discussion. So if you if you're if you're looking at a literature text and you're looking at, you know, a pivotal point in the story where you're making predictions or you're analyzing the character actions or uh, deciding whether or not the character was morally right or wrong in the way they handled that moment. You have kids participate in the online discussion, and then you facilitate that face-to-face -face in the classroom. And you, through through experience and through modeling, you show <laughs> the students how you can say, you know, scroll through that discussion board and say, you know, I really agree with what Gary wrote here. You know, he's halfway down the page. How he said, 
in this line and blah, blah, blah. Like using it to serve that face-to-face interaction where it initially gets everyone to participate, but it also can help the students that typically would not participate that have great ideas to share. It's a little bit easier for them to, to do that. And then especially when people talk about what they said and they realize they have good ideas to share. So, so I'm with you, Gary, like it's too, it's, it's like anything too much Mm -hmm. of something is not good, too much water, too much vegetable. Like it's all the same, right? It has to be balance. And in my opinion, it has to have purpose. I had a teacher email me this week asking about what new technology tools he can bring into his classroom. My first response was, other than scheduling a time for me to go see him this week was, what are you hoping, what are you looking to accomplish? I'm not just going to show you a tool. Like what instructionally are you looking for? More engagement, more uh, problem solving. Like what are you looking for in your classroom? Yeah. And I I noticed with, with Google classroom that we do have a problem with engagement. Um, This year we instituted class-wise, which is, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it's this thing that Mm -hmm. shows you every kid's screen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's amazing. So I have two monitors in my classroom, like I have here at home. And on one of them, I'm looking at every kid's screen. And then the other one, I'm displaying something on my clear touch board. And at a glance, I can see like, you know, three kids are playing a video game and they should be working on their research paper. Um, and I can just go in and focus them by, by closing those games. But um, it's ridiculous. I mean, if if they didn't have that in front of them and they just had some paper and a, books and articles, you know, they, they'd be writing. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have the opportunity to play a game. So I totally agree with you. Um, but I also liked your point about how it does engage the kids who are pretty shy and don't want to take part in a class discussion. I remember seeing this when I was in grad school teaching a freshman comp class as part of a a teaching assistantship I had. And this was like way early on um, students joining discussion boards, like you said, and actually writing a lot, but I would never hear from them in class. And I I love that aspect of it. All right. I want to shift a little bit and I hope that's all right, but I I have a curiosity um, to what your, your response to this is. First off, I love the titles of your books. Obviously, um, <laughs> there are um, components to this, like a glossary of chickens. I'm sure that there is, you know, a common theme or thread of of why it has that name. But you know, that is fantastic. That's a side note. One of the things that I I speculate when we have these conversations with really talented educators across the country is we hear every once in a while from educators that are subject matter experts in addition to being teachers. So most times they've come, they've worked the business world or they've worked as an authentic position for a phase of their career and then they moved into education. But it's really common, especially in what I would venture to say related arts, like your art teachers or your music teachers, to be artists and musicians outside of the school. How do you feel like the interchanging between professional poet and author and speaker influences your classroom? And how does your classroom influence your professional subject matter expert side? Yeah, it's a great question, Matt. Um, You know, definitely uh, hugely impacts my teaching, I think, because I'm constantly bringing in my experiences as uh, a writer, as a poet, somebody who's been involved with writing and publishing work since the late 80s. I also edited my own poetry journal for a while. And in grad school, I edited a a journal at um, Iowa State. So I had a lot of experience in in publishing (laughs) and, you know, what to do with writing if you want to share it with the world. And, you know, these are things that I was able to share with my students early on and I still share with them today. You know, pretty much every time I get something published, if it's appropriate, (laughs) I I share it with my students. And, you know, I think they feel empowered by it and see like, oh, wow, I could do that too. 
and a lot of them do. I mean, many of many of my students, you know, submit to contests, win prizes. They get their work published in the in the literary journal at school and things like that, and in the newspaper every week. I got to I got I can't wait to talk to you guys about the newspaper. But um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah I do want to talk it, about that. It 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 definitely um does impact my teaching in a big way. I'm also, I think, um, maybe more so than some teachers, very open about myself with my students, which I think makes me approachable. But I still keep things, you know, purposeful. I'm not friends with my students, but I'm friendly with my students, and I let them into my life a little bit by sharing my my experiences and telling stories. Um, you know, one of the things they love hearing about is this sabbatical I did back in 2005, where I where I went out and lived in the wilderness of Oregon in a remote cabin off the grid, and did a writing residency there for seven months with my dog. Like when I mentioned that, like. I've got every kid's attention in the room. Mm. Uh, you know, they, they love hearing some of the some of the cool experiences that I've had. And a lot of those were because of writing. I mean, that that was a, a writing residency where I got to go and live at a cool place just to work on my art. Um, and then your, your other part of the question was um, just you know, kind how, of how does, yeah. how does it, in, uh, you know, affect me in my art? You know, you mentioned a glossary of chickens. There's quite a few poems in that book that grew out of my teaching. Hmm. One of them is called Owl Pellet I Show My Students, um, which was about an experience of bringing in an owl pellet that I had found while I was out walking my dog. And we looked at it and saw all the little bones and started picking it apart. And then um, I was giving a lesson to that group of students on the sonnet as a form of poetry. And I actually wrote on the board on the spot the sonnet for them about that. Um, owl pellet and then later in a series of revisions it sort of like um, like the owl pellet itself got digested and became something else um, so it was no longer a rhyming sonnet but it was a little poem about that experience and you know when I shared it with those kids uh, you know they loved it and you know that's a great example of just how teaching comes out in my art all the time I'm actually working on a new manuscript right now and uh, there's, there's a few teaching poems in this one too so yeah, the work comes out in the poetry and the poetry comes into the work. Can I ask a, a quick question and then I'll let Ken move into the newspaper? Yeah. One of the things that I think fascinating about poetry, and I do not have nearly enough experience to talk about it, is I feel like mindset going into analyzing a poem, like mentally being grounded allows me to think about the precise language used that was specifically um, chosen by that poet, right? Every word matters um, so diligently. Um, how do you find yourself instructing kids to mentally prepare to tear something like that apart? Is there a prep before you start? Because, you know, I could imagine you take a word and you're subjectively just going off the deep end on um, that based off the emotion you walked into class with. Yeah, I, I think I do try to prepare them for the study of poetry by by saying it demands a lot of attention and you know a lot of thought that it may look short and kind of easy to to get through. Um, but unlike say prose writing, yeah, you you really have to think about it. You have to read it slowly. You have to read it a few times. And that's typically when I when I do a poem with the students, I do read it more than once, you know. So maybe maybe I'll have a kid read it, and then I'll read it, or we'll listen to the poet read it uh, on the clear touch board or something like that through a video. Um, but yeah, I think hearing it a few times is key, and then just having time to sit around, sit there, and think about it. So I usually have them annotate a piece after we've read it a couple of times, and let them start making comments in the margin, circling words, making connections, thinking about it. Um, but I also think it's probably one of the most powerful types of writing for me to teach as a language arts teacher um, because it does demand that kind of attention. And I think if, if kids can understand and even write their own poems, I think they could pretty much write, write most things. I have to imagine too, with you being a published published author and and focusing on a lot of your books on poetry, it just has to make the transition into the quote unquote poetry unit 
better for, for your students? Because I, I mean, I can remember as a student, it was like, all right, let's just get this poetry unit over with. Like, nope, like poets aren't real writing. You know, like that was, that was my mindset going into it. And, and I don't have that today, but I would imagine it's a lot more engaging for the students in your class because you can, you can kind of defend it, right? There's a, there's yeah. a little bit of a, a different buy-in when it comes to, when it comes to that. So talk to us about our, talk to us about your school newspaper. Um, like you said, it's a publication that has existed longer than any of us have been alive. <laughs> so what's the, what's the history and tradition behind that? And also, you know, what's the legacy that you've, you've transformed with it over the last 27 years? So as far as I know, it's been called the Echo since the beginning. And I have some of the old print issues in the archives in my classroom that date back to 1914. I don't have any before that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's the oldest one I have. And then for that one, it's just like a photocopy of the front page of it. Um, and back when that one was published, uh, the high school didn't even exist yet. It was just, you know, I think one school in Tenafly that all the kids went to. Um, and so you see stories in there by an eighth grade student, a sixth grade student, you know, maybe an older, an older kid who's in the 10th grade or something like that. Um, you know, over the years, it changed format depending on, I guess, who the advisor was, who they could find to print the thing. So some years it looks like a real newspaper. Other years, it's more like a magazine saddle stitched, you know, with staples on the side. Um, so we have a lot of those old copies, which are really fun for the kids to see. I, I break them out every now and then and uh, pass them around the class and share share with the kids and, and you know let them see like what kinds of uh, businesses were advertising from their town back in 1921 and things like that. Or I, I pull out like the World War II issues and things like that. So, so um, I started with the newspaper in 2016. One of my long longtime colleagues stepped down as the advisor and the the position became available and it's a, a stipended position and I, I jumped on it and said yeah i'll do it not realizing they were going to make me give up my advising of the literary magazine which is called omega so that was the trade-off for me in taking on the newspaper i i had to give up the, the literary magazine which i kind of understand because both have little stipends um, um and it just seems only fair to, sh to share the wealth so when i gave up the, the lit mag, you know, I also had to give up creative writing, which was my passion to teach creative writing. And they wanted me to launch our first journalism class. So my school didn't have a journalism class prior to this. So I developed over the course of the summer, a, a journalism intro to journalism class. And then like I did with creative writing, I proposed successive levels, making it so that kids can take journalism for four, for four years at my school. Um, and right now, that is the course I'm teaching this year. It's a mixed level course. So I have kids who are what are they called CPA level, college prep A, intro to, intro to journalism. And then I have honors two. So that's kids taking it second year. And I have two kids from honors three who are in it for the third year, one of which is um, a managing editor in the paper. And then it's also a club at my school, an extracurricular club that meets during a lunch period each week. And so kids who aren't in the journalism class come to the club and they pitch their story ideas. They learn techniques, the editors help them along. I, you know, guide them as I can. And, um, that's the way the stories get written each week is we have some club members writing and we have the journalism class also doing a lot of writing. They're basically writing a piece every week or every two weeks. Um, many of which are viable for the newspaper. And it went fully digital when I started in 2017. And I use a platform called Snow Sites, School Newspapers Online, which is the platform that many high schools and colleges use to deliver their digital newspapers. It's basically a WordPress that comes out as a website. And in the background, you're working in the dashboard of a WordPress to get all your stories uploaded and formatted. Hmm. Over the course of, of managing this, have you... Have you brought in other media platforms to be a part of your journalism class? So is it really focused on the writing or, and I don't mean, you know, going, and I know you know what I mean, but just for our audience, I don't mean taking it to snow sites, to snow sites. I mean, involving um, 
television or social yeah. media or what other platforms are you involving in this journalism media class? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. My school has a very strong TV broadcasting program okay. um, r run by a colleague of mine whose name is Steve Moger. He's been doing it for many years, and it's probably one of the most advanced TV uh, stations set in a high school in, in New Jersey. If not, I can't imagine that there's another school that, that does it uh, with this kind of professionalism. Every day during our morning announcements for Homeroom, we have the morning show, which is filmed just minutes before uh, the Homeroom happens. And it's... Uh, the desk where it's filmed is the former set of the Today Show that the media um, you know, library media center director got for free from, from the Today Show. And we have professional cameras that the students learn to operate. We have a professional sound room and mixing room where the videos get mixed. And then he also, this guy Moger, runs the MTV class, it's called, which um, send students out with their microphones as reporters uh, interviewing people to, to do their daily stories. So it's an amazing program. It's, it's like watching Good Morning America, but it's only for five minutes. Um, but the kind of work that goes into that is incredible. <clears throat> so I tried to get Steve to, to like collaborate with me mm -hmm. when I first took over the newspaper. And he, he seemed gung-ho gung about it at the start. And he was coming to some of the uh, newspaper meetings and we were trying to think of ways to like make all the videos get posted on our echo website so we would have you know video content and not just um you know written content and i don't know for some reason maybe he just didn't like the platform it never really meshed together and came together in the way that i envisioned and hoped for because i, th I thought it had such great great potential but i mean it's it's still awesome that we have this strong tv program uh, Tenafly TV. Just last week, we filmed our, two weeks ago, we filmed our lip dub. I don't know if you guys have ever seen one mm -hmm. of these, but my school has done, I think, four of these We now. do it too, yeah. Yeah, it's really fun. So that was like the latest thing that went up on the, the Tenafly TV station. And it has a YouTube channel if you guys want to check it out. It's called, uh, I think it's Tenafly TV. Yeah, so, I'll link up to it. I'll link up to it in our in our show notes, the description oh, cool. of this podcast. And I, I, I'm curious to watch it because my school district has um so i met with a rep to look at outfitting one of our middle schools with something much 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 simpler and he said that our district has the best studio he's ever seen installed in all of pennsylvania oh, wow. and i and the teach it's very similar setup to what you're saying the teacher that runs it he has classes that run it every day they put out the news called the daily ramble so i'll, I'll link up to ours as well I think yeah, it'd be cool great. to almost maybe connect the teachers to compare how they run it. But they have the mixing room. They have the professional cameras. They they have the whole thing. And he was telling me when the school district decided to move in this direction, he had someone say to him, ask for the Mercedes Benz and, and maybe you'll maybe you'll get like the Jeep Wrangler. And he said, <laughs> I asked for the Mercedes Benz and I got the Rolls Royce. It was just like, yeah. for whatever reason, they just went all in. And so it's, it's really incredible to see what the students can create. And I think mm -hmm. that's the value of what you're doing in your journalism class, what the, the media class is doing. And I think part of, of combining it too, because I don't really think our newspaper and our daily ramble collaborate too, too much is some of it's just the logistics of you're still in a public education school and, and you're yeah. teaching a class, he's teaching a class and, and just that, that extra effort to, that goes into it sometimes just isn't totally feasible and also the opportunities are there for your students and that's all that really matters they have the opportunity to be on tv they have the opportunity right maybe they have the opportunity to do both if they're interested and so i think that's what's important is that you both are providing the students with authentic opportunities to explore a passion to just make school more fun for the four years that they're there or to possibly be a thread into a future career that that they're looking into Absolutely. Um, I've had many kids who've gone off to college who said, you know, when they were studying broadcasting that they were so prepared, like they knew how to use cameras, they know how to edit video. Um, one, one of our graduates, uh, she's right now an anchor and reporter out in Little Rock, Arkansas. She just won an Emmy for broadcasting for the work that wow. she's done. And, um, you know, kudos to her. And she, she was in Steve Moger's MTV class. 
She did the morning announcements. She wrote for the Echo. I think she was one of the editors of the Echo. And she she's come back and visited my journalism class a number of times. Very, you know, kind about giving back to the school. So yeah, to to see you know the way it's, it can prepare kids, I think is you know quite profound. Do you feel like through your experience, you have more examples of kids who were inspired by your course and changed maybe their future career paths? Or do you feel like you had kids respect this as a hobby and make it still a part of their lives, even if it wasn't a future path? Because the reason why I say that is when you talk about this journalism, when you talk about the newspaper, those are, um, that allows kids to see their own identity. Like the, the, you mentioned being prepared, but they have to make tough decisions. And when they find something they love that they devote themselves into, I could either see them be like, Hey, I really had a, a plan to go in this path, but I really enjoyed this. I'm going to continue to do that. Do you have a lot of success stories of that? Or do you see yourself uh, remembering more the, this kid went into this career and I can tell because of not, you're allowed to take all the credit that you would like to, <laughs> but, um, but there, there's the influence of a high school teacher that can change the direction of a lot of kids' lives. And it sounds yeah, like you have that power to do so. Absolutely. And, you know, mentoring for me has been, you know, one of my passions. Um, I've had a lot of kids over the years write me, you know, the thank you note at the end of the year. Um, you know, I was just looking at one of them prior to signing on with you guys that a student inscribed in a book she gave me last year, um, Tuesdays with Maury. And, um, you know, I think... I've wondered over the years, how, how does that happen? Like, you know, why, why do they see me as a mentor? And, uh, you know, how do I, how do I like explain that, articulate it, like let other teachers know how to, how to do it. Um, and I'm not quite sure I, I know, but I think a lot of it has to do with just providing opportunities uh, for kids to become passionate about something by sharing my own passion. And then, just listening to them and guiding them along the way. So to answer your question, I would say it's a bit of both. Like a lot of kids who either took creative writing and said, all right, I'm going to become a writer. I'm going to major in English or something like that. You know, a lot, I've had a lot of kids tell me over the years that they're going to major in English when they go to college. Um, and some who have gone on to become college professors. Um, you know, one of them was our, our lifeline on Cash Cab, by the way, when my colleagues and I were on the TV show Cash Cab, we called a former student who's now a professor. <laughs> we knew she was going to get it correct, and she did. Um, but others, I think, they they take the creative writing class, but then they go on and be, they become a lawyer or a doctor. But, you know, I think their lives are a lot richer for having, you know, taken that. And maybe they, maybe they still write. Maybe they read more. Um, so, yeah, I think I think a bit of both. There's, like there's so many passions that, that can come out of that. And yeah. even you could solidify for a student, this isn't the career that they want. That's just as valuable. That might be more valuable for them to learn being in your journalism class. Hey, I enjoy this. It's fun. I couldn't do it for a living, right? And now they are not pursuing it in college and wasting that time and, and wasting that money. And so but also, I think that's what great that's what's great about those authentic experiences is solidifying or that it is or is definitely not something that they want to pursue. Sorry, Matt. That I, I'm I'm sure you could follow up uh and say like the pursuit of going through something, the the determination to fight through something you know that doesn't match you is what you talked about at minimum that preparation. Um you're welcome to answer that, but I do have a follow-up to uh, the other question. So why don't you start there? Um, do and you... I do want to jump into our exit ticket in yep, the next absolutely. couple minutes, Matt. Yep. All right. All right. What was the, what was the question again? So so the question <laughs> is how did you how do you feel like uh, from Ken's point of view, a kid recognizing that maybe they thought they were going to go down a path that related to what they were studying with you, and then found out it wasn't a right fit. No, I think I think that's you know absolutely valid and fine. And, you know, um, I see nothing wrong with it. In fact, you know, 
journalism is a tough career these days. Newspapers are folding all over the place and it's becoming harder and harder. So, um, you know, I, I love that kids get interested in journalism. I had, I had one who graduated last year who was a co-editor in chief who's now studying journalism at Boston University. Um, she, she recently published her first piece in a lo local paper in Cambridge and shared it with my class over Zoom. Um, you know, I love that, but I, I also think that, yeah, I mean, kids who, kids who join the newspaper and write a lot of stories, but then go on and, you know, major in something else, they've at least got that, that background of being able to talk to people and interview them, um, which gives them public speaking skills. They have the writing skills because they're able to, you know, put pen to paper or, you know, fingers to keyboard and, and write a piece um, on a given topic and to do proper research and give proper attribution and not plagiarize and you know so the skills the skills uh, avail them whatever they choose to do so my my last question before the exit ticket was I, I like flipping this question and i've done that a few times to you we talked about the kids who recognized that this is something they enjoy and making the decision could have been in my career or could it just be influencing a hobby of mine have you ever struggled with the decision, should I make journalism and these features, you know, uh, an author and these say a full-time gig and teaching a hobby? Did you ever struggle <laughs> with that since you had such experience or have you always had this um, love of, of what you're doing instructionally and just knowing you're getting as much as you need out of the, the hobby side to satisfy that craving? Yeah, I've I've always um, resented a little bit how much of my bandwidth, uh, you know, my bandwidth teaching takes up, because a lot a lot of years from September to June, I'm not doing a ton of writing, um, and in my summers or when I you know have managed to land sabbaticals, I've, I've gotten more more stuff done, and so I've always been like, man, if I wasn't teaching full time, I could be writing full time. Um, but I've got 27 years in. I'm not. I'm not that far away from retirement. So yeah. hopefully, I'm going to be able to, um, you know, to do that a little bit more, and maybe maybe continue to keep teaching a hobby, coming in as you know a leave replacement or a tutoring or, you know, helping helping students out one way or another. But um, you know, I'm a passionate teacher. I've, I've been a teacher for a long time, and it's part of a key part of my identity. Uh, I couldn't really imagine doing something else. And, uh, yeah. you know, it continues to energize me and keeps me feeling young. Yeah, go ahead, man. Oh, I was just going to say, and healthcare is nice, too. Or the stability, <laughs> you know. Of, uh, and yeah. that's the legit, the funny thing. What, what brought Ken and I together was this love of originally instructional technology. And it transitioned to just good quality teaching. And Ken has more so gone full time with what was our high hobby previously. And I have long struggled with, should I make that jump? And I just love teaching and infusing yeah. it where I can. And it's just, it's interesting. I asked that question because again, you have two distinct options. Whereas as an elementary teacher, sometimes I'm like, Am I good at anything enough? That's what we as elementary love to say to ourselves because we don't define ourselves as subject matter experts. So, mm -hmm. Got it. You're a fourth grade teacher, right? Uh, I just, I was fourth grade for nine years. Okay. And so this is my first year in fifth grade. Nice. Yeah. It's, uh, it's doing, been a change. It's doing great. <laughs> it, it is going well. All right, so I want to I want to jump into our exit ticket, which are the same four questions we ask every guest every week. Question number one: What is the best thing a teacher can do to make a student's school experience better? I I think I think um, I would say treat them like a real person and get to know them and make their learning fun but also purposeful. Love that. Love it. Um, what is the best piece of advice that you've received? And that could have come from a colleague, a supervisor, even a student. Start your 403B. <laughs> that's, so that's great advice that we've never had. Somebody, somebody told me that my first year of teaching, and I'm so glad I did it. And now I, I say that same advice to new teachers when they come into my department. 
yeah, man, start investing in that 403B as soon as you can. Even if it's a little bit, I realize, you know, starting teachers don't have the best salary, but that money grows and you need your mm -hmm. nest egg. So yeah, I would can say you, that, that was one of them. It, just because we've never gotten that answer, do you mind just expanding, you know, obviously with sensitive uh, the nature of it, can you just explain what you mean by that a little bit further? So a 403B is a tax deferred retirement plan offered to public school teachers and others who are in the, the public sector. And uh, it's basically investments you can make pre-tax that go into a, a fund that grows over years because it's invested in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, whatever the plan might have. And that money just grows exponentially over the years. And then when you retire, you get taxed as you take it out. But it's a nice nest egg to you know, go along with your pension. Yeah, it's just, we've never gotten that answer. So I thought <laughs> I might as well let you be the platform for it. I, I thought it was a good practical piece of advice. Yeah, it's uh, fantastic. You know, um, you know, it's I love it because we've never had it. And it's advice that I received. It's advice that I give as well. Something else to explore. There's also a 457B, which... Right. I'm not sure if you can contribute to both. There's there's caps and everything on what you are allowed to contribute, but I think the difference is a 457B. If you were to leave teaching earlier than your typical retirement age, I think you can access the funds different. So mm -hmm. talk to your tax advisor and look into both. But use yeah, I've, them, I've heard definitely. of that one. Yeah. See, I, I'm a Roth IRA guy. The yeah, but you can do both. I know. You act like Reduce we your taxable get... income, man. Uh, hey, less than well. Uncle Sam. All right. Moving on. So needless to say, and, and you made a mention to bandwidth before, but the school year definitely goes in waves. There are, you know, days that we're uh, jumping for joy that we get a paycheck for what we do. And then yeah. there are other days that we are struggling to survive. What do you feel like you can pass on to educators to hear to help them power up through those moments of struggle? I think self-preservation is something I've always tried to keep in mind. And, you know, one of my early supervisors, you know, stressed this for me too. Um, you know, I remember her saying, you get your 13 sick days a year for a reason, take them, you know, and um, yeah, your own mental health is so important. So if you're feeling burned out, you know, take a day, make a me day. Um, you know, for English teachers, our our me days are typically like we take a day, and we're home grading the whole day. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's not like it's it's not like it's a vacation day. Um, but yeah, I think that's important. Self preservation. You know, like you you can only do so much, and you really gotta take care of yourself. So I would say that. Another great piece of advice that Matt specifically needs to hear. <laughs> Getting better at it. I, I've only taken five sick days in 15 years. Wow. Yeah. So I, I have been very healthy. That is the big portion. But Yeah, that's good. You know. Ken, for the last one. Sorry. I was thinking you had one more. I don't know why. Uh, it's easy to fall into facilitating a repetitive classroom. What separates teachers who are constantly seeking change, innovation, and adopting new teaching strategies? I think, uh, you know, creativity is so key in being an effective teacher because you're right. It's easy to just fall into the pattern of, you know, doing the same thing every day and, you know, keeping it mixed up for the kids just makes it so much more enjoyable for them and for us. You know, like I can't mm -hmm. stand doing the same thing every day. So I'm always thinking, you know, no matter what I'm doing, I'm always thinking like, how can I use this in my class? You know, like I'll pick up a copy of a magazine or read a story and think, oh man, this would be great for class. Or how can I turn this into an AP Lang, you know, rhetorical analysis passage? Like I'm constantly thinking of new ways to, to use material in class and new ways to present it. Um, I didn't get a chance to talk about this, but um, I did a, a great, um, I mean, I, I guess I would call it a summative assignment, but it was also like kind of lessons built in. But to cap off my, our study of Ethan Frome, the Edith Wharton novella recently, I let my students choose from eight different options um, to sh as an enrichment project. And I, I think of these as also like memory making assignments because it was so fun. 
so for one of the things they could um they could write an alternate ending to the story for another one they could do if they preferred to like just learn more about literary analysis they could write a literary analysis essay um to my mind that was the boring choice they could write a series <laughs> of poems one of them in the voice of a character they could record an original song and perform it for the class inspired by the novel they could paint an oil painting of the setting or a acrylic painting and you know i think there was there was one other oh they could do a uh, they could do a play this was fantastic i mean it was so fun um three three kids chose the song two kids came into class one of them with a full drum set and another one with a violin and they performed the song for the whole class and it was so thoughtful because they also had to write a commentary on it explaining their choices and so it was like it was true synthesis and it was like this is what people do in the real world like musicians read a piece of literature get inspired by it and compose a piece like this is what they were doing um so anyway it was it was a fantastic assignment um i'm forgetting what your question was but somehow it led me to this nope it, you hit on it perfect you're yeah. good yeah so anyway that was a really fun assignment and it's it's a memory maker like the kids are probably not going to remember what they read in my class but they're probably going to remember oh yeah i remember performing that song in whitehead's class that was really fun mm. absolutely um if it's not evident to the listeners, we've very much enjoyed this conversation. Um, how can we continue to learn alongside of you, uh, seeing that our episode is coming to the end now? Uh, follow me on Instagram. I've got my teacher page page up there. Uh, what else? Oh, check check out our high school newspaper, The Echo. It's called uh, the uh, You know, you can read my books. What else can I say? Um, <coughs> that's all good. That's all good. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so make sure you send me the links directly to your your school newspaper as well as that <laughs> as as well as the TV program because I'll link up to those. I'll link up to your Instagram as well as your website, um, which everybody can read in the description wherever you're watching or listening. Just scroll down. So Gary, seriously, thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. You're clearly doing great things for the students that you work with on a daily basis. So, so thank you for the service that you're providing to those students. And Matt, why don't you take us on out of here? As we power down this episode, uh, Gary, you've left us feeling powered up. Thank you for your time. And to our audience, we look forward to another great conversation next week. We'll talk to you then. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to or watching us on YouTube. Each week we get to talk to amazing educators who are making a positive impact on the lives of students, their colleagues, administrators, and education as a whole. It's been such a privilege every week to be able to talk to these incredible individuals, learn from them, grow with them, and better myself and all of education through these conversations. If you haven't already, please consider sharing this with a colleague, someone who can benefit and be powered up from the experience of listening to these incredible conversations. Because of Powered Up, we are powering education by empowering you.